I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, This Mythic Life. Like all of my work, this podcast is drawn from ancient but still bubbling wellsprings, from the old forgotten pre-Christian mythologies and philosophies of the West. These traditions, from the magical stories of Celtic Ireland to the soul-centered myth-tellings of Plato in ancient Greece, are rich, complex, and beautiful. They offer up a world in which everything is not only alive, but has purpose and intentionality of its own. A world to which each incarnated soul chooses to come for a reason, to fulfill its own unique calling, and to offer up a gift which can only be expressed through a relationship with and participation in that animate world. Carrying the fire, carrying with us the image that we were born with, that we brought with us when we chose to come into this world. I believe that it's time to reclaim those old indigenous ways of being, to reclaim the foundation stones of Western spirituality and bring them back out into the world where they belong. Founded in authentic scholarship as well as committed embodied practice in the mythopoetic and creative arts, this work is above all about finding our way back into the mystic, about delving into the mysteries of wild psyche and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. So in this podcast, I offer you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. You'll also find episodes which share my own reflections on cultivating the mythic imagination, on listening to the dreaming land, usually with a story or two cast into the bubbling cauldron for good measure. So I'm delighted to be here in the home of David Abram in the foothills of the mountains uh, here in Santa Fe. We're recording it live over a coffee table, so there will be rustles and uh, noises and maybe a few uh, auditory distortions that might not normally happen on these podcasts, but we're just going to see how that goes. So David, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. I'm delighted to be sitting here with you, Sharon, and it's a great pleasure to finally meet you and to have you here in my home. And we decided um, before we started recording that it was probably better and easier for you to introduce yourself rather than uh, for me to, to make a hash of it or miss out all of the key bits. So why don't you tell us something about yourself and your work to begin well, with? Well, so I'm a cultural ecologist, somebody who, it sort of combines anthropology and ecology. I studied different cultures and their relation to the, the landscapes that hold and sustain them and nurture them, and what we can learn from other cultures about uh, what might be good to open in our relation with, with the terrain, but what we can learn from other cultures also about what might be good not to do. We can learn from the mistakes of, of other cultures as well. I'm also a philosopher, or what some uh, speak of as a geo-philosopher, that is somebody who philosophizes or works out the ways to think under the influence of a more-than-human earth. Can we find ways of thinking that don't tear us out of our co-evolved carnal rapport with other animals, with plants, with the winds and the waters, but that hold us in rich relation to the animate earth around us? What I tend to be known for is my work on perception, or what we could call the ecology of perception. 
or the ecology of sensory experience, the way the activity of our animal senses, of our eyes, of our skin, of our ears, our nostrils, functions almost like a kind of glue binding our separate nervous systems into the encompassing ecosystem. That sensory perception functions to bind our individual nervous systems into the wider ecosystem. But I'm just as interested in what what we could call the ecology of language. That is, how what we say so profoundly influences what we see or what we hear or even taste of the earth around us. Because I'm convinced that there are ways of speaking that many of us have inherited from this goofy civilization, ways of speaking that actually inhibit and stifle the spontaneous kinship between our body and the flesh of this living world we inhabit. But I'm just as convinced that there are other ways of speaking that can encourage and enhance that instinctive rapport between our creaturely senses and the earthly sensuous. And so I'm always seeking and sussing out such word magics, ways of speaking that open our senses to the sensuous. And, and what kind of ways of speaking, can you give us an example, the kind of ways of speaking that you think detract from that relationship building? Well, in, in our over-educated, over-technologized civilization, uh, we do spend a lot of time talking about nature, talking about the weather, talking about this and that. I've noticed that in healthy cultures, cultures that actually live in some kind of reciprocity with the surrounding landscape, they spend just as much time talking to the ground underfoot, talking to the wind and the weather patterns, talking to the mountains. So that would be good to just begin every now and then opening our conversation out beyond the exclusively human space where discourse tends to be held if one thinks that humans alone speak or that language is an entirely human prerogative and it's what distinguishes us from the other animals. We've got language and they don't. Um, but this is a kind of madness, really. And it's very recent as an assumption. I, I reckon that every deeply indigenous, traditionally oral culture we know of assumes from the get-go, not just that everything is alive, everything alive, but indeed that everything speaks. It's just that most things don't speak in words. Things speak in uh, rhythms like the crickets or the tree frogs. The wind speaks as it gusts through the branches. Thunder itself is a kind of speech, the splashing of waves on the pebbled shore. But the voices of other creatures, bird song, for instance, well song, as we know. But the, the, the cries and calls and utterances of every other 
shape of sensitivity and sentience within this world, these too are, are rich with meaning, meanings that we can also feel and even understand some, not by translating them into words, but by feeling the resonance or getting something of the gesture of what's being said. Our body is a variant of all these other animate bodies around, and so we're also able to feel and and respond to and pick up, I would say, a great deal of the meaning. If we allow that meaning is something much wider than a purely verbal mystery. It's interesting to hear you say that. One of the things that I'm particularly passionate about in my own work is convincing people, I suppose, um, that our own culture, particularly uh, my tradition, the Irish and Scottish um, Gaelic and Gaelish, Gaelic traditions, is very similar to the, the cultures that you're talking about of other indigenous cultures, and that you can actually see this throughout, right into even the Christian era. So, for example, uh, we can see in the Irish tradition the, the belief in the power of words to change things. Yes. So the Irish bards were ha, had as much power as they did because they learnt the way to say things. They learnt the right words, and these words were very much about. Often, if they well, it depended what they wanted to do, of course, but they would kind of effectively write praise poems to the land. Um, they would praise a tree. They would praise the weather in order to cajole it into relationship, in order, you know, to tell it how wonderful it was, so that it would hopefully um, mm. play ball a little in terms of what they wanted to do. But the other thing that they did, it wasn't just about word; it was also about the position that they took while they were speaking words. So mm. there's a stance in the Irish tradition where, uh, particularly when they were when they were doing a satire. Um, mm. on a king, uh, which could, you know, was believed really to have genuine power, and that if it was a really good satire, you couldn't be king any longer if it worked very well. But there was a stance that they would take, which is kind of roughly called the crane stance. So mm. they would stand on one leg um, with one arm behind their back. Um, and the idea behind this appears to have been that the crane is a bird, a liminal bird, you know, it has access to all of the, pretty much all of the elements except fire. And um, that it, in that way, it can, it can, it's also a bird that's associated with the other world, the ability to cross mm. the threshold of the other world. So it mm. holds a lot of power. And so by by mimicking, it's more than a mimicking. By putting themselves in the position of the animal and speaking these words, they really believe that it changed the world. Yes. So it's not just, you know, we always think of these things in other people's indigenous cultures. But I love the fact that if we go back to our own. Western traditions, to the extent that we can, we see exactly the same thing. It's there for the t reclaiming, you know. Yes, indeed. Beautiful what you say. It's one of the uh, ways that my work has been taken up that I'm most proud of, really, as, has been within my own tribal tradition, which is the Jewish tradition. I've been insisting for many, many years now... Uh, two and a half decades, that, that Judaism really has much more in common with the other indigenous tribal traditions of the earth than it does with the other world religions. And yet it's so often cast as the first people of the book because it is a deeply literate tradition. And yet it's also 
richly, richly oral tradition, which was never fully squelched. In fact, it was encouraged. The written Torah, the Hebrew Bible, the written Torah, was always understood to be useless without the accompaniment of the oral Torah, which goes alongside, which is transmitted in person, directly, face-to-face with others. And as an oral tradition culture, it's so thickly related to the land and to place. It's very, very earthy. One has within also the Judaic tradition, for instance, the tradition of the nigun, or nigunim, which means the the songs that uh, a Jewish mystic finds when she is out wandering the land. Every now and then, if she or he is caught up in fascination with a particular cluster of rocks or a particular bend in the river, a song will leap into his tongue and start singing itself through him. And it's a song without words. A nigun is a song without words that that you find and start singing. And various of the great teachers or magicians or mystics within our tradition are also uh, famous for their particular nigunim, their particular wordless melodies that they then taught, brought home and taught to those around them. And, and what did they say about why they were doing that? It's a way of, it's much like you were saying about praising and praising particular place. It's a way of coming into both resonance and and intimate exchange with a particular place or a particular animal or a particular encounter with the land or a particular grove of trees like the aspen groves above where we're sitting here the person would become transported uh, by an encounter with another shape of life like an aspen grove and out of this encounter a song might come so that reminds me of that, that the original derivation of the word enchantment, which is literally to sing into. To and sing that's into. What hap- that's what's happening. Indeed. Just so. Just so. And some of these are uh, wonderful. And it's a gorgeous practice. Um, something um, all of us and each of us should be um, privy to and, um, and attentive to finding, finding the melody, finding a song. Out in the land. Dum diggy 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 dum 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 diggy 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 dum 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 diggy dum diggy 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 dum 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 diggy 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 dum 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 diggy day 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 dum diggy dum day 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 dum diggy dum diggy 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 dum 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 diggy dum diggy 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 dum 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 diggy 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 dum dum uh, like Whose this. Whose song is that? Whose song is that? It's mine. Your song to who? Uh, <laughs> or from it, It's mine in relation to the moon. To the moon. And, and, and uh, a moonlit night walking near here. I say it's mine, by which I only mean that it, it came to me, it came through me, but it's no more mine than it is the moon's right. and this terrain's. It's an act of co-creation, kind of. Oh, it's very, very... happens in the space between you and the moon. Yes, just so. Between me and the the moon and this terrain as it's lit uh, 
by the full moon. It, it um, reminds me of, we were talking this weekend at the workshop that I have been running here in Santa Fe, um, about anthropomorphizing and how people get very, very hung up on, you know, if they if they talk to a stone or if they talk to a tree, it's like, you know, I'm suggesting that it's human. And it it's really, uh, that has always frustrated me very, very deeply. And I have been trying to explain to people that, I mean, apart from the fact that, of course, we can only see normally um, with, with human eyes, what we're trying to do is not inflict humanness on a tree any more than the tree is trying to inflict treeness on a human, but to create something that's, and an emergent emerging of the two of us in the space between human and tree, if that makes sense. So there is something alive there when we talk to a tree in that space between us that is a little bit of both, maybe more than both. Hugely so. Yes, I mean, I, we've surely both noticed that any culture that is really close to the terrain that sustains it and lives in some sort of a nourishing rapport with that land. It seems to me every such culture has, it has various intermediary beings, fairies, little people, elves, sometimes very big people like trolls. Uh, I've just returned from a story gathering trip in Norway where I was hearing a lot from the old uh, farming families in the valleys in western Norway uh, about the Hudra, these uh, women. Some Hudra can be male, very, very alluring, often unclothed, naked uh, women that uh, a man out gathering plants or um, hunting and tracking suddenly comes upon these various beings who I think of as intermediary beings who are so often uh, interpreted by the literate mind of modernity as being just supernatural uh, creatures that are born in the imagination of a culture. But then why is it that they exist in every culture that is close to the land? and close to the earth, it seems much more likely to me that they're not supernatural at all. They have everything to do with nature, but with nature experienced from within its depths by by a, a human creature who feels herself or himself uh, fully a part of the rest of this blooming, buzzing world of life and shape and shadow and texture that when one out walking the world or gathering medicines comes upon a, a particular tree or even a particular cliff uh, or, or stone or boulder, maybe encrusted with many lichens slowly spreading on its surface, and he is or she is fascinated by this boulder and something in my imagination stretches toward the rock, but the rock itself feels something rich, interesting, curious, that a human animal has stopped and is actually lingering with it and pondering. And so something within the rock begins to stretch toward the human. And the tension between these, because boulders and people are very, very different styles of 
vitality and different styles of being, really, weirdly other to one another. And the tension in that encounter as each one is stretching toward the other sometimes pops into being another creature who is sort of half rock, half human and speaks human-ish to the human and speaks rock-ish toward the rock, but lives in that intermediary realm just there. And that these are very much creatures of relation. And they live in the interstices between us two-leggeds and the more-than-human field of life. And they take different shapes in our encounter with different beings. And some are very large and some are very small. But I'm gripped by, by this sense. It's been growing in me for a long time. Yeah, me too. I've always felt that um, I've studied, as, as you have, um, Henri Corbin's concept of the mundus imaginalis out of the ancient Sufi tradition. And again, it has always seemed to me that most of, of that act of imagining which he talks about comes from the land. Mo most of those, what James Hillman would call the archetypes, come from the interaction between us and the land. Yes. And that this act of imagining is an ongoing thing. One of the, th one of the things that distresses me um, as a human today is we seem to have fallen into this sense that all of the stories almost have been told. You know, we, we've, st we've, we've forgotten that we are story makers, mm. that we are, as Jung said, myth makers. Yes. Uh, and that this constant um, act of being in relationship with place kind of brings new myths, new stories, new archetypes, new beings, new creatures of the kind that you're talking about into um, into being and that this is a necessary act for the world to continue to grow and to transform yes. and to be in its own process of becoming. Yes. I deeply, deeply agree. It's also a strange goof that we think of the mundus imaginalis or that we think of imagination itself as being um, somewhere other than the earthly sensuous. It's always seemed to me that imagination, which we think of as this realm of uh, free-flowing images of wild creativity, as the imagination as a kind of faculty within, within our head for the creation of fantasy and other worlds. But it seems to me that imagination belongs first to the senses long before it becomes uh, or it begins to separate itself off from the senses and uh, operate on its own. That the imagination is the way that our senses have of throwing themselves beyond what's immediately given in the surrounding world to make a deeper contact with the other sides of things, this, the aspect of, of a tree that I don't see directly as I'm walking in the woods. I see this tree trunk nearby, and I keep walking past, and I have a sense of that whole tree, even though I don't see the other side of it. That is, the imagination of my eyes fills in the back of that tree with, with a trunk with bark, very similar to what I see on the side facing me. But we're doing this all the time with the other sides of, 
hills and boulders. And, but even if I walk around to the other side of that tree, there's still a great deal of even the trunk that I don't see still uh, because, for instance, the whole inside of the tree, which could be hollow. It could, yes, it could be entirely hollow and have a bunch of rope ladders within it with little human-like beings yodeling on the ladders to one another as they climb up and down. Who knows? I Unless I go up to the tree and knock on it, I have no idea whether it's dense within or hollow. But as I just walk past a tree in the woods, I have quite a felt sense of the visceral density and thickness of that trunk because, again, the imagination of my body lends something of my own visceral density and thickness to what I see of that tree trunk. I think we're doing this all the time. Continually, there is so much of the, in fact, most of the perceptual field, even immediately around us, we do not encounter directly with our senses. But we're filling in that gap all the time with the imagination of our eyes, with the imagination of our skin, of our viscera, with the imagination of our ears. So it seems to me that perception always, always involves imagination, that we are always dreaming up the world that we see and hear and encounter, not just when we're asleep, but especially when we're awake, out wandering the world. It's not just us, of course, who are doing this, but the bats, as they're flapping by at night, dreaming their way toward particular fruit trees that they'll pollinate. But the blossoms on those fruit trees as well are stretching toward and imagining or feeling toward the pollinators who will come toward them out of the depths, just as the blossoms right outside my door here are doing with the bees, even today. That every being is imagining, is encountering the world not just through its senses, but through its sensory imagination, or the, maybe I should better say that, its creaturely or even plant senses have always a kind of leading edge of creatively, very gregariously, filling in the gaps in what is most immediately experienced in order to make deeper contact with the things and the beings around them. And so in that sense, I think that imagination originates as, as this gregarious quality of, of, of our bodily senses. Goethe spoke of the exact sensory imagination, which, which at least uh, helps us recognize that there is some deep kindredness and kinship between the senses and the imagination. Mark Twain, one of our great American thinkers and writers, Twain said something like, he said, you cannot see clearly if your imagination is out of focus, <laughs> which gets at the same thing. Yeah. yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you that it starts very much in the senses. I was always though, taken with Henri Corbin's concept of, of 
imagination moving beyond the senses into a kind of imagination of the heart, you know, that sense yes. when we're feeling into yes. the tree, for want of a better reason, or when we're feeling into the moon to let that song be co-created, that there's yes. something additional that is happening there, that it's kind of like moving supersensory. Uh, he called it imagination of the heart, I guess, because we don't have very many other ways of putting it, but I, I kind of like that idea too. Yes, that's lovely. That's lovely. What I would lean against um, often with, with, with dear friends is just that the mundus imaginalis exists somewhere else, that it really is another world. I think that has been perhaps a fruitful way of thinking for many centuries. But today, in uh, the midst of so much ecological fragmentation and disarray with with so many earthly catastrophes um, cascading around us, so much falling apart, and so many other species, other shapes of life and sentience and sensitivity winking out of existence as we spend our days, it, it seems to me that, that we need to recuperate a sense of the outrageous wonder and mystery of the physical world itself, that perhaps it's important today that we begin to fold the supernatural dimensions and the sense of the imaginative or the mundus imaginalis, the, the world of imagination itself, folded back into the earthly world that we inhabit with the whole of our animal body, this world we inhabit with all these other animals and plants and mountains and rivers and storm clouds, that this world is the very body of imagination in some mysterious manner. I'm quite struck that even when we speak of the invisible or the invisible worlds that we for so long have have understood the invisible to be somewhere entirely outside all bodily ken. While, just as I was, um, was saying, there's so much of the visible world that is invisible to us. There's the other side of things that we don't see directly. There's the inside of things which we don't encounter with our eyes directly. But then there's also that which is between things, the medium, the air, the breath, the wind, which is also invisible. It's that through which we see everything visible. But the air itself is necessarily invisible. If it were visible, it would stop up our gaze and we wouldn't really see anything else. But that the medium in which we're immersed and from which we draw breath is itself invisible. So there's so much going on here within, within the body's world, even in the air itself, this space between you and I, where there are all sorts of vortices and currents moving and pollens floating. So much goes on within the invisible even if we allow that the invisible is, just as the word says, in the visible, right here. 
Yes, one of the things I love about uh, my own tradition, the Irish tradition, is that even when they are talking about the other world, which they do a lot, um, it is absolutely inextricably entwined with this one. Yes. It's, it's, it's not even correct to say that, that it's an overlay. It's actually a different way of perceiving. Yes. And so the example that I always think of is the, the example in The Voyage of Bran, Imram Bran, where he is invited um, by another worldly woman to sail across the ocean in search of Tiernaman, um, the, literally the land of women. And off he goes with his men in a wooden coracle. And they have many adventures, but one of the most interesting things I think that happens to Bran as he's sailing across the ocean is all of a sudden, out of the sea, looms a character called Mananon Maclear, who's often um, described as a sea god, which is a little bit mm. of, a sim- of sim- oversimplification, um, but it's it's part of the way there. And Mananon says to Bran, "Hey, you think you're you think you're on a on, in a boat, don't you? You know, you think you're going across the sea." Uh, and Bran says, "Well, yes, of course I do." And you're in the sea yourself. And uh, Manon says, well, actually, I see you rolling along in a golden-wheeled chariot on the plains of Magmel. Beautiful wildflowers everywhere. And you think that's a wave, don't you, Bran? And Bran says, well, yes, of course it is a wave. Um, and Manon says, no, that's the hill of whatever it is. I can't quite remember what it is. And what he's making very clear to mm. Bran is that it's almost, it really is a different way of perceiving that it's almost as if there's a veil which one can penetrate, but it's the same world. Yes. It's just a different way of looking at it. And as oh. you say, the, that, that to me is very much the invisible. So I would say from, from listening to you now that the, the Irish concept of the other world probably is very, is very similar to what you're talking about. How beautiful. From what I hear you saying then, that this world that we experience, of course, with our human shape and through our human senses, would, of course, be experienced very, very differently by a spider or by an oak tree or by an elephant or a wolf or coyote or a deer or an elk, that each being encounters the world from its own angle and style through its own set of senses, according to the vicissitudes of its own flesh. And so this world we experience and that we have taken for far too long as an objective set of facts is really a world of worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds and of outrageously divergent styles of experience intersecting with one another and interpenetrating one another. But of course, this is closed to us if we think that humans alone are really awake and aware. But as soon as we allow that everything is alive and that, of course, other animals are intensely awake, sometimes much more than we are awake in their senses, then this sense of the world in its shape-shifting capacity becomes much, much more evident because somehow this spider that I encounter weaving its web in the corner of my space is without a doubt experiencing this very same world that she and I inhabit together and yet is experiencing it outrageously different from the way I'm experiencing it. And the apple tree out the door, rooted in the ground, slurping up, you know, water with its 
uh, rootlets, drawing water up into its trunk and on out through its branches and its leaves, drinking the sunlight in a way utterly different from my kind of respiratory metabolism. That tree is also encountering the very same earth, in fact, this very same land where I live, and yet is encountering it utterly differently and experiencing it from an outrageously different perspective and style. And also in the, in the Irish tradition following on from that, there, there was a theory that one could, that a human sometimes could penetrate that veil. Uh, and of course, at particular times of the year, like Samhain, when the veil was perceived to be thin, or in particular places which were perceived to be liminal or threshold zones, but the idea was that every now and again, you could slip in there and you could see it for what it really was. And I was very taken when I was reading Becoming Animal, where you were describing some of your experiences studying with um, magicians, shall we call them, in um, Southeast Asia, when you said you were talking about the magician's ability to, um, I quote, I think, dream himself into the wild physicality of that of the other. Yes. Is that part of the same process, do you think? Oh, yeah, very, very much. Very much. If the world of our senses, uh, that is the world that our senses open us onto, is also experienced from all these other angles and perspectives by other creatures, by other plants, perhaps even by stones themselves, by storm clouds and gusts of wind, then we're in contact with these other styles of perception all the time. So first, before stepping deeply into, into uh, the realms that your question opens, I think it's useful for us to acknowledge then that if the world we perceive, the perceptual world, is a perceived world, that if one wants to change the world, and Lord knows today the world needs to transform, but if we wish to shift and transform our world, changing people's perception is, is a key and very powerful way to change the world. And, of course, ways of speaking or what we might call word magics. Word magic is just a way, a way of acknowledging that that language so profoundly shapes the ways we see and hear and taste things around us. And my sense of your work, Sharon, is that you're exploring and actively engaging this mystery of word magic, how different ways of speaking transform perception or bring the world alive in a fresh and new way that we had not anticipated or even imagined was right there for the tasting. My work too is, is about this work. So it seems to me that when I'm watching another animal closely, even watching a bird, a hawk, one was perched on just the casita, the, the neighbor's house nearby, which was quite unusual 
This was just two days ago. The hawk launched itself, soared overhead through the air, uh, circled a couple times, and then soared off into the distance. It does seem to me that when we're watching another animal, when I'm watching a bird in its flight, if my senses are really focused on that other, then basically my nervous system is synapsed to the nervous system of that creature. Because the hawk, as it swerves and turns and adjusts to little currents in the unseen air between us, it is making those adjustments with its own nervous system, its own sentience, really. And I see the fruit of those adjustments in those wing feathers and uh, the flaps the couple flaps as it finds its way back into the main current of air. I'm actually in direct relation, not just with the outside of that bird, but with its interiorly felt experience. Um, my nervous system is synapsed to its nervous system. And sometimes when I'm really watching, when I'm really listening, when I'm really attuning to another creature, I can just fall into that other mode of experience and find myself willy-nilly and utterly unexpectedly experiencing the world from its perspective because my body is not cut off from its experience because my body is a variant of its body or its body is a variant of mine. It seems to me the body is a great and sacred mystery at the heart of these magics we're speaking of. The body, which we often think of as just the house of the, the soul or the temple of the spirit. But come on, that uh, leaves this creaturely, animate, two-legged, two-armed form as, 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 as just some sort of built structure that houses the mystery of the mind or the spirit? No, what if this body is the very shape of a spirit, of this spirit that is me, of this soul or sentience that I am? My body is my access to all the other bodies in the land around me. It is a variant of every plant of every stone. I have my own stony bones, my skeleton. I have my leafy aspects like my skin, but I have my muscled self, which actually can take on something of the gesture of any other body in this sensuous terrain, because I am a part of the same terrain as that lichen-encrusted rock, as that deeply-rooted apple tree. And so I'm not alien to it, and it is not alien to me. It seems to me the body is precisely our capacity for metamorphosis, our uh, capability to suss out or feel into what other beings or bodies feel. Yeah, that's interesting because one of one of the things that I was thinking while you were saying that 
is that really in indigenous cultures that it, that would be how they would describe their their shamans what they were doing that this was very much an embodied experience um, whereas contemporary shamanism if we <laughs> if we can uh, indulge that label for a little while uh, I'm sure you feel about that sometimes the same way that I do that it really isn't but but it tends to be presented as very much a kind of out of body or disembodied experience and all in the head experience yes whereas to me it seems to be completely missing the point it's completely missing the point uh, the work of the of the traditional indigenous medicine person or magician or shaman, if we want to use that word, though I tend to avoid it because, yeah, living here in northern New Mexico, um, the word shaman and the word shamanism is terribly overused. Sometimes seems as if every doorknob thinks it's a shaman. Um, And the weirdness is that this practice of the magician is different in every culture Uh, First and foremost, because each place is different, because each landscape has its specific geology, the mineral makeup of the soils there, which invite a particular set of plants to take root and grow there. And those plants are pollinated and uh, feasted upon by specific animals who dwell in that terrain or migrate through that terrain. And the magician or medicine person or dukun, as they're called in Indonesia, or zankri, as they're called in Nepal, every land has a different name for this, these practitioners and for the practice, which it seems to me, far from being a, a practice of consorting with supernatural beings, is very, very much an engagement with the other styles of sensitivity and sentience that comport themselves within the same terrain that we dwell. The magicians are the intermediaries, those of human form who are particularly adept or rather particularly susceptible to the solicitations, the calls, the cries of these other-than-human shapes of sensitivity and, and awareness. And that becomes the magician's calling, really, is to mediate or tend the boundary between the human world and the more-than-human community of powers in which the human gang is, is embedded. To keep that boundary porous, to make sure that it stays a membrane across which there's a kind of two-way flow that that the human community never takes more from the land than it returns to the land, whether with prayers or propitiations or praises. But the magician's practice is one of keeping the boundary porous, making sure that it never hardens into a barrier that shuts out the wider terrain from the human community. It would seem that today we have been living within a civilization that has forgotten that there are other shapes of sensitivity and sentience and vitality in the land. I mean, we encounter other creatures, we see the forest, but we think that these are all 
just entirely objective, often mechanical beings programmed in their genes. We speak of them in these intensely mechanomorphic ways uh, as though they were not just as alive as we are. The apple tree, the clump of sage, brush, hawk, the coyote that wakes us up in the mornings here, as if these beings were not just as awake and present in the world as we are, actively making meaning in their lives, in their ongoing day-to-day and night-by-night engagement with the same ground, the same air currents, the same waters that we engage. And so it would seem that in our goofy culture, the boundary between the human and the more than human has hardened into a kind of barrier or even a hall of mirrors or of screens where looking out at the land, we just see reflections of ourselves. And so the land has been suffering and the earth itself is crying as it is slipping into a bone-wrenching fever, an illness so intense that it's finally stirring us out of our screen-dazzled oblivion to realize that, my gosh, good golly, there is something more in this world than just ourselves and our own cogitations and our own signs and our own screens, that there are other styles of intelligence right here among us. Yeah, the, I suppose our equivalent in, in my tradition of the, the medicine person would, would be a character in, in folk lore and folk history mm. in a culture called the Banfasa, which literally means woman of wisdom. Mm. And um, she would tend to be on the edge the community mm. rather than in the center of the community but still nevertheless tied to it and she would be you know when we when we hear the word wise woman these days we tend to think of herbalists yes but in the irish tradition it was very much more than that she was she was the intermediary yes. between humans and the other world yes. and again bearing in mind that when i say the other world i mean entangled with the land so she yeah. was the intermediary mm. between humans and if you want to put it this way the spirits of the land yes and yes. um her diagnoses, if you like, were almost always based on an imbalance between the person involved or the community as a whole and the land. Yes. So things happened because of that. You know, it wasn't so much about physical Ill- illnesses. She was a kind of a village psychologist in, in very, very many ways. But her practices were all about correcting the balance. Yes. Um, even if it came down to something that sounds rather trite, perhaps in today's culture, like leaving a gift for the fairies, yes. leaving a gift for the spirits of the land because we had ignored them or because we had offended them somehow. That is exactly how she would restore the balance and make people aware that something was required of us as humans by the spirits of the land, by the other world. And I love that um, about it. I also love the fact that we have a number of stories where not only do the deities in our kind of mythology and the old spirituality shape shift very easily between human and, and bird between human humanoid and, and bird but there is a going throughout the mythology is is 
a recognition that animals have wisdom that we don't and that it must yes. be listened to. Yes. You know, so often when they've exhausted the wisdom of humans in the village and they've exhausted the wisdom of humans at court and so on, they're told then to go and ask the animals. And they go through the animals one by one until they, they reach the oldest animals, who are always older uh, than the humans. And yes. this is just that wonderful sense that they know something we don't. There are ways of being in the world that we don't have, and therefore they must be respected and um, and yeah, their advice asked. Sure. It's an interesting thing. You know, one of the, my favourite thing that I think that of yours that I've ever read, mm. uh, a line that I think again it was in Becoming Animal, is when you say shamans, shamans, which however you want to pronounce it, are found in every species. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Yes. T tell us more about that. And that perhaps again, it's about animal a, wisdom. Uh, a kind of cross species. Uh, right, that's uh, it. That was being. it. Yeah. Yes. Well, can I hold that for a moment? Okay. Because I just wanted to link to what you were just, what you were just saying and saying so beautifully. This is that these these women of wisdom, uh, who live at the edge of the community, um, and I've always been struck right, by the word hag, which is short mm. for hagazuza, mm. she who rides the hedge, yeah. the boundary keepers those who dwell never in the middle of the community, it seems to me, because they're, these are people who are rather too sensitive. In our culture, we would call them oversensitive because they feel things so readily. Other people percolate right through them. And so uh, somebody comes to visit really depressed and you start feeling depressed. But even if you're in conversation with folks who are quite, happy and engaged and someone walks into the room all bummed out because he just got fired from a job you might start feeling kind of glum and blue without quite knowing why until you catch sight of this other person who just dropped in on the party when another person is feeling all uh, fluttery and uh, ecstatic because she's just fallen in love well, something of that ecstasy hooks right into you, even if you're not even seeing that person, but that person has come into some proximity with you. That is, other people percolate right through you. And folks with this kind of sensitivity in our curious civilization um, often don't know what to do with themselves. It's not really very good for anything in a culture that assumes that only humans are aware and awake and alive and sentient. Folks with this kind of oversensitivity tend to get locked up or they lock themselves up and then wake up when they're 40 or 50 wondering, gosh, where have I been all my life? But in a healthy culture, a culture that knows that everything is alive, even the stones, even gusts of wind, a culture that knows that everything is alive and aware and awake. Folks with this kind of sensitivity gravitate toward the edge of the community, where with one hand they can be in relation to the human goings-on, but on the other hand, they're in relation to the forest and all of the other shapes of awareness and intelligence that compose the forest and inhabit the forest. But Folks like this are useless in the middle of the human community because it blows out all their circuits. They are quite useless as 
a mayor, for instance. Um, and it's good to have a mayor. It's good to have various folks who can function well in the middle of the human hubbub. And so it's quite good that not all of us uh, are oversensitive or s sort of richly, attentively sensitive in this porous or over-porous way. But in a healthy culture where there are such people of wisdom, medicine carriers, such intermediaries or magicians, as I might call them, when they're doing their work, then everyone within the community takes on something of that porosity and rich sensitivity, as long as there are a few folks who are tending that edge, that membrane between the human world and the more than human world of intelligence. And they often are the healers, the medicine people for the villages in their vicinity or often the villages in uh, many days walk from that village in Indonesia. I had the luck to spend time with a number of such bizarre folks called dukuns down there. But their ability to cure and to heal people is not there. They don't see it, at least among those few folks I had the luck to spend time with and to live with, did not see their ability to heal others as their primary role or function. Rather, it was a byproduct of their craft of tending that boundary or equilibrium between the human world and the more than human world. Because illness in such cultures was understood as just as you were saying, as an imbalance or disequilibrium within a person's body. But the source of that imbalance or dis-ease was to be found not within that person, nor within that person's relation to his family, or even in relation to the community as a whole. But the source of the imbalance always lay within the relation between the community and the wider system in which it's embedded. So if a magician or a medicine person was just working as a healer and not tending that wider uh, equilibrium, then he might, uh, he might heal a person of a particular illness, but that person would then fall prey to another illness. And so perhaps he'd be able to, or she'd be able to eradicate all illness from that person's body, well, somebody else will fall sick in the community. Because the illness, the disequilibrium, is not in any individual. It lodges there. It takes up residence there for a time. But the real dis-ease is always understood to be, uh, to lie in that wider relation, imbalance or balance, between the community and the wider community of the forest and the fens and the waters. It reminds me of um, Jung's story of the rainmaker. You know that one? Don't remember okay. it. Um, he, uh, he, he was quoting a friend of his, Richard Wilhelm, who was a mm. translator who went to China. And uh, Wilhelm told him a story of a drought in the mm. area of China where he was. And it got so bad that they sent to a neighboring village for the rainmaker to come. Mm. And so the rainmaker came. He locked himself in a house for three days, and three days later, the rain came. 
So Wilhelm, in true European fashion, goes knocking on his door and says, how do you do that? You know, how did you make the rain come? And the rainmaker says, I didn't make the rain come. And he says, no, come on, you know, how did you do it? The rain's here. How did the rain get here? And the rainmaker said, ah, I come from a place which is in Tau. Uh, and so naturally we have rain. And when I came here, I found a place that was not in Tau, that was not in balance, that was not in order. And so I had to wait for three days until I was in Tau in this place. And then, of course, the rain came. So in a sense, it's exactly the same oh, kind of thing that, that you're talking about. And I'm kind of curious, just as a by-the-by, if you don't mind me diverting mm. a little bit, what, what drew you specifically to Southeast Asia? I know you, you were a jobbing magician for a long time. That was your first proper job, wasn't it? And uh, then you went to train with, um, with indigenous um, magicians, if we can call them that. Why, why that part of the world? Well, I'd grown up on the east coast of North America and um, in my teens took up the craft of sleight of hand magic and put myself through college doing um, sleight of hand did a couple years of college and then felt like i was going crazy being uh, ensconced within the walls of a school for so long so i took off a year and traveled as a street magician through europe and a bit of the middle east ended up in london i mean there are so many stories in in that story and uh, getting in trouble and spending days in prison in various cities because um, uh, I didn't have a busker's license. But usually I was able to show even the um, the gendarmes or the policemen in various towns a bit of magic and they would they would let me go. In London that wasn't possible. Uh, the Bobbies were just like, no, 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 we don't look at that sort of thing. You know, show it to the chief down at the station. Um, and and so I did get locked up for longer stretches there and realized I had to start just performing in clubs and various establishments around London and got a fine reputation there as a performing magician and fine reviews in the newspapers. At some point met uh, while I was working beautiful uh, character whose name was Francis Huxley, who asked if I would come regale his guests at his birthday party that weekend where I went and uh, and practiced my craft there for the various guests, one of whom, I wasn't sure if he had just come in from the street. Uh, he was quite in his cups and was looking at me askance from various angles, but would not leave the corner where I was performing as other people were coming to to watch, he would not give up his space, but kept uh, crouching down, looking from every angle he could. He was so taken with the sleight of hand. It turned out this was R.D. Lang, uh, wonderful psychiatrist or anti-psychiatrist, whose work I had even been reading the year before at college. And I fell into Lang's community there in London called the Philadelphia Association uh, Place um, where people in various states of psychological distress uh, could go to live with others who were trained uh, just to be with them and not to put them in straitjackets or shoot them thick with drugs, but just to allow them to go through whatever transformative process uh, they were needing to go through. And it's there that I began experimenting with the uses of magic in medicine, in curing, and uh, found that it was 
so uh, it was so potent and powerful uh, a modality of uh, communication with uh, sometimes folks who were even catatonic, but suddenly in encountering uh, a bit of sleight of hand, that is seeing something impossible happen in front of their eyes or in their hand, would begin to move and speak because they they were, um, as one of them said, it's like I'm for the first time experiencing somebody else's hallucination. Um, <laughs> it was quite marvelous. I, I, I went back to college, finished up another two years of college, got my degree, but then took off as an itinerant magician traveling through various parts of Southeast Asia, now with the interest in studying the uses of magic in medicine, the uses of magic in folk medicine and healing, where I was traveling to meet these uncanny and uh, bizarre individuals, the Dukuns, the Dzankris, the magicians in various rural backwaters of Sri Lanka, of Indonesia, of Nepal, um, but I was traveling not outwardly as a researcher in any way, not as an anthropologist or, or doctor, but just as a magician in my own right, trying to meet some of these folks in hopes that my craft as a magician would pique their curiosity. And in fact, this was very successful. And because the magic was like a skeleton key opening up what felt like the inner sanctum uh, several of these cultures, and I got in way over my head. But what was most uh, astonishing to me was to discover that these folks, these magicians who were the healers, did not see their craft as healers to be their primary role and function, that they were, or at least those I had the luck to come to know, were they understood themselves as intermediaries in the sense we've been speaking, as those who tend this wider relation between the community and the more than human earth, um, or the spirits that dwell within the land. But why did I travel to Indonesia first or to Sri Lanka? It was just getting far away from North America, yeah. wanting to experience wanting to experience these forms of, of magic that I had read about, had gotten some clues uh, to by, by my studying and, and my reading about, about magic. And it just seemed like places that, where I might be able to meet such folks. And it was it was being there. I'm mean, see. I'm not going to let you get away with this. It was being there that gave you that idea about um, the notion that shamans could exist in every species. Well, I tend not to use the word shaman again for reasons we spoke. I thought that was a quote. Oh, well, then maybe it was. Okay, <laughs> but that these magicians who are so porous that they can enter into communication, uh, real convivial exchange, conversation uh, with other species, and sometimes even enter into another species and take on the shape of another way of being, another way of inhabiting the forest. 
for instance, I was given to understand that these are not, this is a capacity that exists not just in the human form, that the magicians or such shamans or dukuns or dzankris, when we meet them in human form, we call them shamans or magicians. But because they are adept at uh, convivial interchange with certain other shapes of life, one never knows when one is hiking in the woods and comes out of a clutch of trees and you suddenly find yourself face to face with um, with an elk or with a moose and your eyes lock and something seems to pass out of your right eye into its left eye and out of its left eye into your right eye and a kind of circuit gets set up and then it breaks and the moose turns back to nibbling on the willows and you hike on past but you know something's different you're different everything has changed your whole nervous system has been rearranged recalibrated one doesn't know whether that moose was just a moose or was a shapeshifter a magician that sometimes takes on human form sometimes takes on moose form sometimes the hands sprout feathers and the being takes flight that this capacity exists i would say in every species there are these what i've been calling the porous ones the boundary keepers but these are really shapeshifters who are able to feel their way into other styles of life, other species, other forms of experience. And whether at night when they're sleeping or some of them by day. And there are stories that circulate about these folks in every culture close to the ground, close to the earth. And so, yes, one wonders if it is not a kind of species unto itself, a kind of cross-species way of life that is sometimes moose, sometimes wolf, sometimes human, sometimes red-tailed hawk. Because certainly there are creatures among the other species, individuals who are uncommonly canny. When I was traveling, uh, which story to tell? Um, <laughs> we've, we've all had encounters with such critters. In Indonesia, I found myself to uh, on a peninsula off the south coast of Java called Pangandaran, a place of much magic that various magicians had told me about. There were was a fishing village just uh, at the beginning of the, of the isthmus uh, that opened onto that peninsula. And the fishermen, when they heard that I wanted to go exploring there, told me to take care because of certain beings that inhabit that, uh, 
the forest there. There were various monkeys that accompany you in the trees overhead as you're hiking. But there was one monkey who is so audacious that the fisherman told me he, uh, it's apparently a male primate that would sometimes swing down and steal the glasses. They saw that I wore glasses and it steals the glasses off your face. And they had had to send search parties in to find various travelers who'd gone traipsing around in those woods uh, who'd become utterly blinded by the fact that they no longer had their glasses because this monkey had stolen the glasses off their face. In the northern Rockies, we're here sitting in my house in the foothills of the southernmost spur of the Rocky Mountains. If we travel north up the spine of the continent to the northern Rockies, I heard tell of a particular elk whose bugling is so intense that it's much more uh, musical than that of the other elk around because it was utterly legendary. This moose was so old and had so many different points on its antlers. And I was told these tales because I was walking uh, with a, a couple locals and um, we heard this astonishing sort of uh, a bugling. Those of you who know elk bugling, it's one of the most evocative haunting sounds in all of nature, outrageously so, where the voice starting low arpeggios up and up and up into the highest registers, even beyond your hearing, and then drops down to a, a grunt that's so visceral and plants you in your lowest chakras. But we heard one that was so gorgeous and musical off in the distance. Um, and I was informed that this was that bull elk that was so legendary. Various hunters set out to uh, bag it uh, over the years and were never able to. But this elk would show itself to them and then just dissolve into the forest. One hears tell of such individuals in every species, and I think all of us have come across such folks, whether we knew it or not. And my suspicion is that these are the magicians who one meets sometimes in other than human form, but sometimes they do find their way into our species for a time, for a time. I love that idea. I really love that idea. Thank you. Yeah, so when we talk about fairies and the kind of spirits of the land that you were talking about, the holders and, and so on, I suppose coming at it from the perspective of someone with a depth psychology background and someone who has delved very deeply and studied her own mythology, I do very much myself see it in terms of the old platonic idea which of course carried right through Jung and into James Hillman's work of archetypes as basic forms ideas patterns having an independent existence and that they then are they then appear in different forms in different clothes if you like in different cultures but my perspective on it how that happens isn't that they spontaneously arise, you know, so that grandmother spider 
as, as kind of like an example of the old woman of the world archetype, spontaneously appears to, to Native Americans, or the Kaliach, who is the old woman who makes and shapes the land in my tradition. Um, I don't believe they spontaneously appear. I believe that we co-create them. I, I, that's the only, I don't really like the word co-create, but that's the only one that I can think of. That it is very much the kind of act that you were talking about, that certain places have certain possibilities typally. Exactly. They lend themselves to certain types of old woman or they lend themselves to certain types of, of trickster. Not just because various species exist there, but just because that's the way the land is. It's the nature of the land. It's the personality of the land. And somewhere in our interaction with the land, if we're doing it properly, these archetypes take form that have forms that have meaning for us in the yes, context of both of us in the land and the land in us, if that makes sense. Yeah, very much so. So that is very much how I feel uh, these beings and, and experience them. Because I would say the earth holds these. Uh, because the psyche, in some deep sense, is not ours, yeah. but is earth's. And I want to say that that there is an interiority to the mind or the psyche but it's not because it's in us but because we are in it bodily because we are immersed in a psyche along with all these other bodies the other animals the plants the storm clouds within a psyche that is not ours but is earth's and we participate in it um, and as soon as we bring Earth into the equation, then it alters, I think, our understanding of these dimensions in not just fruitful ways, but in ways that are perhaps cr crucial for what is calling us and what the Earth is calling us toward. So that Plato, Jung, Henri Corbin, I don't think for these elder ancestors of ours, there was yet a full sense that the psyche is not just an attribute of the human body, but of the body of the earth, and is a feel that surrounds the earth in a sense, or, but it doesn't really surround it because it's utterly integral to it. We live in that mystery, and the spider lives in that mystery, and the aspen grove is rooted deep within that body and uh, sprouts and leaves out within that mystery. Well, we are kind of running out of time, but, but there's one question, I guess, I can't help but ask for, for someone who is clearly so deeply in relationship with the world. What keeps you going when it's so broken? How do, how do you respond to the, the cry of the earth? As you put it earlier. It's such a weird time to be alive. <laughs> when so many homes of our brother and sister critters are being ravaged and wrecked and so many other forms of wild intelligence are being shoved to the very brink of oblivion and then kicked over that brink into extinction. Not that this hasn't happened before, 
but never with the rapidity, the intensity, and the full round calamity of it happening on every continent. At the same time, it aches in the heart of every human who is half awake. And what can we do but first and foremost, let that ache move through our organism and allow the grief to flow. It seems to me that the soil of this parched earth needs the water of our tears to know that we give a shit. The soil needs that water. And as soon as the land notices those of us who are grieving, she begins to ally herself deeply with us to open, to reveal new pieces of wonder and astonishment. So the grief is really just a kind of gate or threshold into a world of wonders. As we said earlier, of worlds within worlds within worlds. It's not a nice place, this magic, wild, but it's, it's exquisitely beautiful. It's not nice because it's laced through with shadow and loss. And this breathing earth is a mystery who sacrifices us like that. I've had at least three near-death experiences in the wild, each of which has changed me profoundly. It's not pretty, but it's beautiful. My way and my walk and my work in the world is to help open something of that magic, various edges of it, trails into it, to open something of the taste and flavor of this outrageous wild wonder of a world for my fellow human critters. So it begins to infect them and inform their ways of walking. And maybe as there are more and more folks like you, Sharon, and others of our allies who are engaged in different facets of this work, it begins slowly to spread like a bloody contagion through our species. The realization that we don't live on the earth. We live in the earth, down here in the depths of a mystery so uh, astonishing and inexhaustibly strange and multiple in its strangenesses. And it feeds us and it nourishes me every day and every night. So I'm quite, quite excited about being a part of the story at this moment in its telling. Yeah, I'll go for that. Thank you so much. It's been a real privilege to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. You're very welcome. 
Thank you for listening to This Mythic Life. I've been talking to cultural ecologist and geophilosopher David Abram, and if you're interested in following up his work, please do check out his two main books, The Spell of the Sensuous, Perception and Language in a More Than Human World, and Becoming Animal, an Earthly Cosmology. I have read both of them at least once, and they come highly recommended. And if you enjoyed it, please do continue to follow my work at www.sharonblackie.net, where you'll find free resources, as well as courses which are designed to offer practical guidance for living well, living authentically, connecting with our places, and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. If the ideas you've heard here resonate with you, you might also like to visit www.jaronblackie.net and sign up for my newsletter and my weekly subscriber-only reflections on cultivating the mythic imagination, which is also entitled This Mythic Life. These podcasts are brought to you thanks to the generosity of my Patreon supporters, so if you're able to support this work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for Sharon Blackie, or you can find a link on my website. So this is me, Sharon Blackie, signing off for now. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.